This is Rachel Fields and Jean Delcourt with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. A pair of Republican lawmakers in the state legislature have begun circulating a new bill calling on the state's Department of Natural Resources to set a goal number for the state's wolf population. The bill is a response to a draft of a new wolf management plan the department released last November that would abolish specific wolf population goals and would instead call for the DNR to monitor local populations and decide on a case-by-case basis how they should be how they should change. Under the previous plan, which had set the target wolf population at 350 animals, hunters had used that number to advocate for larger hunting quotas, although the lawmakers say that is not their goal here, according to the Associated Press. Wisconsin state law mandates a yearly wolf hunt, although that law is currently superseded by the wolves being protected by the Federal Endangered Species Act. The last Wisconsin wolf hunt was in 2021 and was mired in controversy after quickly exceeding the allowed quota of hunted animals. The state health department announced today that they are investigating a series of scams that target recipients of FoodShare, Wisconsin's Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. The scam involves targeting recipients using fake text messages, asking for their personal information, and then using that information to steal their benefits. The department encourages benefit recipients to contact them if they see any suspicious activity on their FoodShare accounts, and reminds recipients that FoodShare will never ask for personal or financial information. The Wisconsin Technical College System is considering a proposal to increase tuition for its members, its member colleges, that is, by 1.9% for occupational degree programs, which comes out to about $41 increase for a full-time student. The move would be the largest increase in tuition in seven years, but would still fall well short of the rate of inflation, which was 6.5% last year. The University of Wisconsin system is also likely to increase tuition for the first time since 2013, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. A proposal is going before the Board of Regents later this month for a 5% increase in tuition across the system, which would mostly fund increases in employee pay. A Madison Municipal Court retroactively dismissed 282 tickets for possession of marijuana last week, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. The move comes in response to a 2020 city ordinance that said that the city would not fine people for having under an ounce of marijuana in their possession in most cases. The over 200 dismissed tickets were issued in 2019 and 2020, before the passage of the ordinance that would have allowed for the amount of marijuana the ticket recipient was fined for holding. The tickets represent about $29,000 in fines, some of which were still unpaid. The court is now working to issue refunds to the people who had paid their fines. Hmm. Madison's Plan Commission will vote today on whether to move forward with permitting the planned demolition of a property near Tenney Park on Sherman Avenue. The demolition is to make way for an apartment complex that will include 331 apartments and townhouses, according to the Capital Times. But the plan has faced opposition from the neighborhood, which is focused on the disruption of the character of the neighborhood and the historical significance of the building currently on the property. The Filene House, the building on the site, was originally built in the 1950s to house the Credit Union National Association and was the site of a speech speech by then-President Harry Truman. And now, on to today's top stories. The city of Madison's oldest piece of art is falling apart, but its future remains uncertain. As the city collects feedback from the community about the best path forward, WORT reporter Kelsey Krogan headed out to Madison's west side to see the Annie C. Stewart Fountain for herself. 
The Annie C. Stewart Memorial Fountain is a piece of Victorian art that has been located in Vilas Park since 1925. The statue, located at the top center of the fountain, depicts a mermaid and two tritons pouring water into the base of the fountain. Annie C. Stewart led a life of charity from her birth in 1867 to her death in 1905. According to newspapers, she struggled with major depressive disorder and died by suicide. After her death, Stewart's mother left $2,000 for the construction of a memorial fountain in her daughter's honor. Construction on the fountain was completed 25 years later in 1925. According to a Wisconsin State Journal article written in 1924, the structure was made of white marble from Vermont. Almost a century later, the fountain is showing its age. It's been repeatedly vandalized and subjected to repeated Wisconsin winters. Now, cracks, missing material, vegetation, discoloration, and corrosion impact the beauty of this Victorian piece. Last Friday, I traveled down to Vilas Park to check out the fountain. It was partly obscured to protect it from further degradation. I'm currently walking up to the Annie C. Stewart Memorial Fountain. The actual statue itself is covered in a gray cloth to protect it from the winter. Currently, I'm seeing a lot of biogrowth, a lot of cracks in the foundation of the fountain itself, and the base itself is just unstable. I'm seeing a lot of acorns, bark, leaves, a lot of cracks in where the water would be. Karen Wolf, Madison's art administrator, has been advocating for the reconstruction of the fountain since 2006, alongside a neighborhood working group. I do think that it should be saved in some form or fashion. You know, the elements, whatever is left, I think is an important part of our historical legacy. It's one of our oldest pieces of commissioned public art. According to a report from a Chicago-based consultant group commissioned to analyze the statue's condition over the past year, minimal or moderate preservation at its current site is not feasible. That's due to, among other things, biogrowth, ground penetration, corrosion of internal steel, discoloration in deposits, extensive cracking, and more. And now, the city is asking for your feedback about the fountain's path forward. A short online survey asked the public to choose from a range of conservation options, from relocating the sculpture to an indoor or outdoor site with a new base. The survey also asks whether the statue should remain in Vilas Park, with a reconstructed fountain and base surrounding it, which would be the most expensive option. Additionally, the survey asked community members for possible funding sources, since the project would cost anywhere from $145,000 to $425,000. But like many public art projects, the fountain is not without controversy. For one, it's located adjacent to a collection of Ho-Chunk effigy mounds called the Vilas Park Mound Group, and would no longer be permitted to be placed in its current location due to the historic nature of the mounds. The reality is, you know, we're living here and we have a responsibility too. This isn't just uh, pass the buck. We need to search our own souls about the importance of those mounds to us, because they are important to us. They do tell us something. And we need to make conscious decisions and, and share that stewardship of the land, you know, and the water. And as Wolf points out, there are few public artworks in Madison from artists of color. One of the questions that have come up is, how much do we spend on an existing memorial when there aren't memorials to 
our black residents, our Latino residents, our Hmong residents, where's the diversity? Yet the controversial location of this piece may not be the only significance to the community surrounding it. The statue also represents the story of Annie C. Stewart and the following stigma of mental illness. I'm very interested in Annie Stewart's story, which we don't have much of. You know, I've looked at the newspaper reports from even from her death, and there are some clues. And one thing that was very interesting is that there seems to be a story that she suffered from mental health problems and that on a particular night she went out late at night for a walk and didn't come home and was found in her neighbor's cistern and it was ruled a death by suicide. And that's always made me curious, like if that is the true story of it, but that this family would then leave a memorial for a young woman who suffered in that way from mental health issues. I just think that that's a pretty open acknowledgement of that existing in our world and it's from a time when I feel like there was a strong stigma against it and there still is a stigma. I mean, I also see the potential for this piece to help create conversation around that stigma and reduce it so that we can talk about suicide, mental anguish. We're coming out of a pandemic where people were deeply impacted. I would hope that the fountain could be also something that can talk about that history and that issue. Jim Norman, a member of the Neighborhood Working Group, outlined his work along with the city on the cost and value of restoration of this piece. So our working group has been working for over a year now with um, city staff and with the city alder to try and get a public input process going and make some decisions about what should happen to the, to the fountain because it's been deteriorating for a long time and so not, something needs to be done. Doing nothing is really not an option because that really means the pretty valuable marble statue that sits on top of the fountain will just continue to degrade. The value of this piece and its location is all up to the survey results, along with policymakers and fund contributors in Madison. The survey will close a week from today on Monday, March 20th, and will be linked in the online version of this story at warfm.org. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Kelsey Krogan. The 2020 spring general election will take place on April 4th, and WORT is working to bring you interviews with all of the candidates running for an alder seat around Madison. We kick off our coverage of the spring general election in District 8, which contains the UW-Madison campus. Uh, UW student student MGR Govindajaran is one of the two candidates appearing on the ballot for District 18-8 Alder. He spoke with WORT producer Nate Weggehout earlier today about why he is running to represent the campus on Madison City Council. The 2023 spring general election is less than one month away, and this year there are 14 older districts appearing on the ballot throughout Madison. One of those districts is District 8, containing large portions of the UW-Madison campus and the area north of Regent Street. MGR Govindarajan is one of the candidates running for that older seat and joins me now by phone. MGR, thank you so much for talking with me. Of course. Thanks for having me. And just to begin, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, MGR? Who who are you? Yeah, well, I'm a student um, at UW-Madison. I'm a legal studies and political science major, and I'm running for District 8 Alder. I am a first-generation student. I have been in Madison for about two and a half years. I've spent my time advocating for students in multiple different ways. 
And now I've decided to take that to the local level and hopefully make some change and represent students in a really positive manner. And sort of with that, why are you running for Alder of District 8 there? Yeah, I think students really, we we deserve a voice on campus and in the city in general. Um, We're sixth of the population in the city of Madison, but we have one common council seat. And I think it's the best to utilize it as much as possible. Um, I'm very familiar with how city government works. I've been in the student government for a while now, and my role specifically has allowed me to work with local, state, and federal government officials for a while and been able to advocate on student issues such as affordable housing and mental health and things like that. And I've been able to learn a lot about these issues, which now I believe gives me and the community I've built myself built around myself an opportunity to advocate for these issues at the local level, specifically for students around campus. And you mentioned there that you have served in student government. Tell me about that, about any previously held elected office that you've had. Yes. So I was appointed as the Legislative Affairs Chair in the student government. It's called the Associated Students of Madison. I was appointed two years ago and then reappointed again last year. Basically, my role was to be, I called myself like the student lobbyist. I worked a lot with the state legislature and the governor's office, but every so often I would also interact with um, the mayor, our elders, and our federal legislators here and there. And it's basically just like essentially lobbying on the policies that students want to see through wherever that is. Now, MGR, staying with you for just a little while longer, what do you do in your your spare time? Uh, In my spare time, honestly, it's just homework um, and hanging out with friends every so often. It's part of being a student leader, you really have to prioritize being a student as well, and that is very time-consuming. All right, now let's turn our eyes onto the city as a whole now. Looking at the entire city of Madison, what are the most pressing issues uh, that you would want to address if elected as Alder? Yeah, my number one issue is going to be affordable housing. It's something that I know um, it personally affects me, and I know it personally affects thousands of students around campus as well. There are students who are struggling to pay rent who cannot afford housing who even if they can't afford housing don't have the best housing and i personally think that housing is a human right i think that it should be guaranteed so i'm going to try my best however i can to make sure that there is generally an availability of housing and then making sure that housing is affordable to make sure that you can rent in it or for outside of just the campus area affordable enough for students not students to be able to buy it one day and start owning homes Housing is definitely the number one issue affecting Madison right now. And speaking of housing, I want to dive a little bit more into the issue of housing there. What sort of key initiatives would you like to see here in Madison to bring more affordable housing to the city? I think what the Common Council has been doing already has been a very good step forward, redefining the family uh, definition, working with the overlay, um, zoning, and everything. I think those are really good starts. I think the city has to work with campus a bit more, like the university itself. I want to codify a comprehensive planning framework on student housing specifically, and that means the city working with the university and bringing down the cost of housing, honestly, because the university, for example, believes that affordable housing is $914 per bed, and that simply is not the case. Many students can only afford between $500 to $600 for affordable housing. So it's working with the university to bring that cost down. It's collaborating with the city, campus, and community organizations to create affordable student housing. And it's preserving um, housing for uh, underserved communities 
throughout campus, we all like we have seen, especially this past year, underrepresented communities get kicked out of their uh, housing um, and get displaced, essentially. And I want to work with the city and the university to make sure that doesn't happen, because that's very important to address as well. And then another issue facing the the city of Madison right now is public transit. Now, bus rapid transit is set to take into effect next year, and network redesign is set to start later this year. How, how do you feel about those public transit projects? I'm looking forward to it. I think for sure it definitely is a lot of change going on. It looks like most of it will benefit downtown Ma- or just campus in downtown Madison um, students. Honestly, a majority of students just use bus 80, which is university-owned. Very few actually end up using outside buses, from what I'm aware of. But I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be much easier getting to other places outside of Madison, which I travel to pretty frequently, or just on the outskirts of Madison, I should say. And then there's bus rapid transit coming very soon as well, which will be much faster and easier to get to the malls and things like that. So I'm really looking forward to it, and I think many other students are. I think it's also important to make sure students are involved in this as much as possible. There has been a lot of communication to students about this. However, there just hasn't been a lot of engagement. Um, And that's because it's hard to figure out how to get engaged with the city. And hopefully I'm running to work on that to make sure that students are able to get engaged easily. Because engaging with students is a completely different way than engaging with other members of the community. You have to do a bit more work in different methods to engage with students. And now the final uh, specific issue that I sort of want to take an eye on is the F-35 fighter jets, which are set to land at Truex Airfield here in Madison later on this spring. Uh, how do you feel about the F-35 jets? I honestly do not have a solid like policy on that just yet. I know it's been a conversation a lot. It just it has not been a conversation in the student community all that often, so it has not been at the top of my list. It is something that I plan on looking into this week just because it is spring break for me and I have that extra time. But as of the moment, I don't have a opinion on that just yet. And now looking at your specific district there, District 8, it is a lot of students. Other than other than affordable housing, what are some specific issues to your district? What have you heard from potential constituents? So mental health is another huge issue for students. We are a generation that many of the students on campus right now have been directly affected by COVID in multiple ways, whether it was their high school graduations and their high school time being just kind of cut off or in college, just starting off was just really weird and abnormal. So, and regardless of COVID, mental health is a huge um, issue regardless. So the city currently has its CARES program, and I am really hoping to expand that both in terms of how when it operates currently it's mainly during business hours i would like to expand that to 24 7 because especially covering night times and weekends are very essential for mental health services and i would also like to expand that geographically maybe also working with nearby other like other towns um, to see if they're able to pitch in and we can offer services and things like that as well mental health services is another big one and then i would say for sure sustainability Students and just people, young people in general, we really care about sustainability. We want to make sure that the earth is protected. We want to make sure that the environment is safe. And there's been a whole discussion happening about salting practices and so much more. And it's something that I'm going to bring up to the city council and make sure it's at the forefront of everything. But those are kind of like the two things that are really important to students 
in general everywhere. Now, MGR, sometimes issues get complicated at the city council there. Now, let's say that you have an issue where some of your constituents want to see some policy happen, and you have other constituents who want to see the exact opposite happen. How would you handle that sort of situation? It's really about talking with the constituents, I think. I've been able to build up a good community around me, and this is from students from all around campus. Not even just majors, it's just about uh, groups they represent and groups they're in and how they are involved in campus in so many other ways. I've been able to hear those opinions, and it's really about talking to them. If some people disagree, there will always be disagreements on everything. And it's just about also transparency as well. It's my job. If I get elected as elder, it will be my job to talk to these people um, and say, this is how the policy will affect you. This is how it could affect future students moving in and everything. And it's really about kind of deciding what is the best approach that helps everyone in general. Because as much as I am representing the campus community as well, which will be my number one priority, I will definitely hear back from members in other districts as well who are much further away from campus. And it's my job to talk to them as well, keeping in mind that District 8 will be my number one priority. Well, MGR, we're sort of running up against the clock here. Do you have just any final thoughts that you would like to share with people? Uh, yes, I encourage you all to vote. Early voting starts uh, March 21st, so that's about in almost uh, just over a week. But yes, otherwise, Nate, thank you for having me. I appreciate this. I've been talking with MGR Govindarajan, one of the candidates running in the spring general election for District 8. Now that election will take place on April 4th. MGR, thank you so much for talking with me. Of course, thank you. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Gene Delcourt, here with my co-host, Rachel Fields. Thank you for joining us. Every Monday, we check in with Brenda Conkle and Dylan Brogan to take a look at what's happening this week in city and county government. This week on Forward Lookout, Dane County looks at sending jail inmates to other counties, and Madison continues to try and get rid of city committees. We got Brenda Conkle on the line to talk about what's happening this week in local government. Hello, Brenda. How are you this week? I'm great, Dylan. How are you doing? I'm doing just fine. Happy to talk about Dane County government and specifically the meeting that started at 530 today, personnel and finance. I'm looking at some jail things on our list here. I was going to say, yeah, those are probably the biggies. Um, they're looking at uh, relocating some folks uh, to various other counties out of our jail. Um, I, there used to be four of these, I think, but now there's only three. So it's Oneida, Rock, and Iowa County Jail. Um, maybe I'm misremembering that, but I think there was four earlier. So they're down to three different ones that they may consider moving folks to. Um, and then they're looking at that opioid uh, settlement that they're looking at approving. And actually, really a whole bunch of routine items, lots of grants that they're accepting, um, and some a few housing projects, as well as amending a housing plan. To move these inmates outside of the Dane County Jail, the sheriff's doing it because 
he says the you know there's parts of the the old city county building jail that aren't safe to house people anymore um but it costs 60 dollars per day well it actually sounds maybe cheaper than what it is for to be here in dane county i thought it was 80 dollars a day here in dane county it takes a toll on the people's families to be far away definitely especially oneida county yeah especially oneida county but um could it actually uh save the county money to just not have a jail at all well there you go because these other counties supposedly have overbuilt their jails during covid we had 200 less people in jail what's the difference it's a big question well they weren't prosecuting any crimes then so that helped (laughs) and the world didn't fall apart no, it didn't. <laughs> Sorry. No, 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 no. I, hey, all real there. Okay, Tuesday, um, we have, oh, let's just talk about the Zoo Commission, uh, who meets at 7.30 on this Tuesday. Uh, they have a report to committee. Anything juicy in there at all? You know, I opened it up just to see. I don't, normally there isn't. Uh, um, I know, it happens. Even the- anything in writing, but apparently. They've done a PowerPoint presentation and they have the end of the year budget highlights. So that's what seems to be in the report. If you're interested, you can open it up. You can actually see what they're going to talk about at 730 in the morning. Hey, donor tubes, $180,000 is what it says here. <laughs> not That's not nothing. Okay. All right. Well, nice to see a ledger star and just being having access to to the materials needed to follow these meetings. Okay, let's just skip right to the county board, though. That's happening Thursday at 6 p.m. They're having a committee of the whole. So please explain what that is. And and I believe that's different than the regular meeting, right? Yes. They have, First, they have the committee of the whole. And that just means that they're kind of setting aside a lot of the Robert's Rules things so they can, like, hold a discussion um, so that they can just talk to each other and they don't have to go through all the procedures of making motions and, and following, you know, basic rules of order. Um, so this is so that they can talk in a more, you know, just more casual kind of way. Um, and that meeting is going to be about um, the Capital Area Regional Planning Commission and the MPO, which is a Transportation Planning Committee. Um, and so they are going to um, be talking about their work and how it relates to the county board work. Yes. And then regular just county board meeting after that? Yes, they have a whole bunch of honoring resolutions, uh, Disability Awareness Month, Transgender Day of Visibility, Women's History Month, and some safety awards that they'll be doing. And then they have a whole bunch of routine items. Um, some of the things that we've already mentioned, um, they are looking at um, a few of the, um, oh, again, the opioid related settlement as well the as stuff. the jail stuff. Um, and they also have those housing items as well. Okay, well, let's move on to the city of Madison. Um, We have a meeting of the finance committee that started at 4.30, and that's virtual. So a lengthy agenda for both finance and planning commission. Um, They're both happening right now. Yep, they are going to be looking at, um, again, routine items, but they also have confirming the agreement between the Madison Police Supervisors, um, also known as AMPS. Um, So they'll be looking at that. They also have um they're going to be submitting a grant for the north south brt line um and then there are a bunch of grants for madison metro solar projects um electric buses various things like that that they'll be taking a look at they have the uh agreement with pontoon porch the uh the boat that goes out there on that uses Monona Terrace property and Olin Park boat launch um so they have an agreement there they also have the Truman Olson project, they have the um, Mowers 
I don't know if it's Mowers, um, Urban Market. Um, so that's going to be the grocery store that'll be there. And then they also have a few other items. I would say other things will be interesting. There's some budget amendments and some TIF funding that's going to be spent on East on Wilson and Broom Street project. And then they're going to be looking at compensation for the managers of the at the city level, as well as the police department donation report. Ooh, yes. Always fun to look at that. <laughs> yes. It's mostly for those canines. Right. It is. It usually is uh, yep. not, a, not a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Some of those dogs are better than others. I'll just say that. <laughs> Brendan, no comment on the drawing no, Okay, ready. No um, <laughs> all right. Let's see. What else do we got this week? How about the Common Council Executive Committee? They're meeting at 530 on Wednesday. So no full Common Council meeting, but we do have the the leadership. Yeah, they have a lot of things on their agenda. Um, they will be doing the you know routine uh, updates to the ordinances um, where they find all the mistakes and correct them in one big motion um, and then they will be looking at the uh, dissolving the TFOGS committee and transferring all the responsibilities of TFOGS over into the Common Council Executive Committee and if people who don't don't know TFOGS was the committee that was going to try to make uh, local government more accessible to people um, and yeah and they did that with a weird acronym yeah they did <laughs> I'm not sure what they actually accomplished after all these years that uh, this started way before covid and um some things have been enacted it's been lots of small baby steps um no big things you know what Brenda? we're just gonna do it again okay because we say this every time it comes up more alders more alders i agree we're, all, <laughs> we're you're the, the minority only one. You're, me and you are the only one you need more alders yes. like not just double them. They should not represent more than 10,000 people. <laughs> that way, yes. those 10,000 people get really great service. And if you have more alders, then they don't have to serve on so many committees and they'll have more time to come to neighborhood meetings and other things. Yes, because that's a big part of the job is just talking with constituents and being time having. How can you do that with 25,000 people? Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, it's the thing I take the most public stand on, Brenda. <laughs> so, all right. Well, let's go over the Alcohol License Review Committee that's happening uh, virtually on Wednesday, 5.30. So there are a whole bunch of alcohol licenses. Um, it was a shorter agenda than usual. Um, at the end, they will be looking at clarifying some exemptions to some of the licenses, as well as looking at the recent calls for service, as well as uh, current licenses that have been issued. It was a shorter agenda than usual. Good to know. And if you'd like to know more about what's happening this week in Dane County and the city of Madison government, just head on over to forwardlookout.com. Brenda, thank you as always for guiding us through this week in local government. All right, thanks, Dylan. Tomorrow's the anniversary of a little-known act of resistance against the Vietnam War. In 1972, men seized the SS Columbia Eagle and its cargo, including napalm and other munitions, bound for Vietnam and rerouted, and rerouted it to neutral Cambodia. It was the first armed mutiny on a U.S. ship in 150 years. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. 
Tomorrow, March 14th, is the anniversary of the 1970 mutiny of the SS Columbia Eagle. Two men, civilian merchant marines, seized their ship with a cargo of napalm and ordered it diverted from Vietnam. The two seamen were members of the Seafarers International Union. Clyde William McKay Jr. and Alvin Leonard Gletkowski were both military brats who had been expected to join the military, but they both developed anti-war sentiments after repeated trips shipping war material to Vietnam. Vietnam. They were 26 and 20, respectively. In February 1970, McKay brought a gun and a dog-eared copy of the diaries of Che Guevara with him to the Union Hall in Long Beach, California, to look for work. There he met Glutkowski for the first time. McKay and Glutkowski talked as they waited to ship out and compared experiences. Glutkowski later wrote, Now they're using a bomb called Maypalm. It sticks to the skin and burns, and there's no way to get it off. It mutilates innocent people, children. We carry it over in ships. The two men plotted on the trip across the Pacific, and after nearing the coast of Vietnam, began their action. McKay and Glutkowski began their mutiny. On March 14, 1970, they pulled the fire alarm to get most of the crew into lifeboats. Pointing his gun at the captain, McKay said, This is a mutiny. We don't want to kill anyone, but we are nervous, and these weapons have hair triggers, so be careful and do exactly as I tell you. First off, this cargo is not going to reach its destination. Gladkowski and McKay told the captain they were seizing the ship to stop the bombs from being used on innocent women and children in Vietnam. McKay falsely said they had planted a bomb on board and said they would detonate it unless the captain ordered his men to abandon ship. The captain tried to talk them out of it, but eventually gave in. Twenty-four men in lifeboats were cut loose and left at sea. McKay and Klutkowski knew a ship a few hours behind them would carry them to safety. McKay and Gutkowski forced the captain to take them to Cambodia. While being pursued by U.S. Coast Guard destroyers, the ship sailed into Cambodian waters 36 hours later. In Cambodia, they handed their cargo to the Sihanouk government in protest against the Vietnam War, claiming asylum as anti-war revolutionaries. They were treated like heroes by the Cambodian authorities, but the next day, a coup against Sihanouk occurred. Allegedly, the CIA helped remove Sihanouk because he refused to let the Pentagon covertly bomb North Vietnamese sanctuaries. A rumor spread that McKay was CIA and the mutiny was a trick to get weapons to the new CIA-backed Cambodian government. Partly because of the rumor, the new Cambodian government didn't know what to do with the mutineers. They were arrested and imprisoned for several months, but later escaped. McKay wrote to his mother, If I had not played a part, in opposing the war machine, I would live with inner torment. I had to follow the dictates of my conscience, and when the U.S. government acts against God and humanity, I am bound to oppose it. Gladkowski turned himself in to the U.S. Embassy. He was sent home and sentenced to 10 years in prison. McKay joined the Khmer Rouge, along with Larry Humphrey, a U.S. deserter he had met in a Cambodian prison. Tragically, McKay and Humphrey were executed by the Khmer Rouge in 1971 for unknown reasons. Gladkowski later said, We were weighing out the destruction that these bombs would do on humans. We knew that they were causing more suffering and we had a chance to actually stand up against it. We honestly believed that our lives were worth less than the lives of all the people that would be affected. Being sailors and transporting these weapons, it just made it more real for us. You can't have a war without us. We felt this was an imperative thing that we had to do even if it meant we lost our lives. We also had no desire to hurt anyone else. Our goal was to get them off our vessel, all of them. Our goal was to save as many lives as possible. 
and if it meant losing our lives in the process, so be it. While researching the book, The Eagle Mutiny, authors Richard Linnett and Robert Loderman discovered the likely location of McKay's remains, which were returned to his family in April 2002. The family held an emotional service to give thanks for Billy's life. He is buried near other family members. Back in 1970, McKay had thought their mutiny would inspire a wave of mutinies, but that wave never came, at least not in his time, not during his war, according to authors Lynette and Lauterman. Years later, Gladkowski spoke out against war and made the difficult trip back to Cambodia. He is at peace with his decision. And that is our story for today. For the past is the past, I'm Harry Richardson. Spring is just one week away, even if the weather outside sure doesn't feel like it. Where the producer, Caitlin Davis, breaks down what we can expect in the forecast this week. Yet another Thursday snowstorm has made its way through Madison, and this time it's spread itself throughout the weekend. With spring beginning in just one week from today, it sure feels far from it. Current temperatures are sitting at around 29 degrees, but with the 80% cloud coverage and northern winds blowing right between 5 to 10 miles per hour, it's making outside feel much colder, almost by 10 degrees. Looking into tonight, those clouds will be staying present, but the wind will be slowing down. It's time to turn your heat back up as temperatures tonight into tomorrow will be dropping down into the teens. If you didn't know, daylight savings has made its way back around yesterday at 2 a.m. If you haven't already, it's time to set back those clocks. Also, be sure to set multiple alarms if you're a heavy sleeper. With the time change, the sun isn't rising until 7.11 a.m. It won't go back to rising at 6.30 until the beginning of April. So, if you're someone who depends on the sun to wake up, it's time to start setting those alarms. With the temperatures fluctuating between 40 degrees and the teens, it is important to be careful if you're trying to enjoy ice fishing or even walking on the lakes here in Madison. Water freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit, but it is important to know that because it is 32 degrees outside, that doesn't mean the lake will freeze. Below freezing temperatures are needed for a week or longer in order to start the process. And right now, Lake Monona is 35 degrees, so make sure you be careful and know if the lake is frozen enough before walking out to the middle of it. Although we have been seeing some very cold patterns here in Madison, we finally might start being able to break the pattern this week. Tomorrow is looking to be chilly with a high of 32 degrees, but that won't come until the afternoon. The morning tomorrow is going to be very chilly in the teens, but we'll be feeling much chillier with real field temperatures in the morning in the single digits. The UV index tomorrow will reach 4, so be sure to protect your skin if you're going outdoors. Tomorrow is looking to be sunny with late and variable winds, and Tuesday night will be dropping into the 20s with few clouds and increased winds between 5 to 10 miles per hour. Wednesday is looking to be a nice day with a high in the upper 40s. Variable winds will be between 10 to 15 miles per hour, and partly cloudy skies will be making it feel colder. The UV index is looking to reach 3 on Wednesday. Into the evening, temperatures will drop into 40 degrees and will be mostly cloudy with a chance of some rain showers overnight. High wind speeds will continue and humidity will go up, making favorable conditions for some rain. Thursday, we are looking to reach a high in the mid-40s, but rain will be persistent. There will likely be light rain and cloud coverage throughout the day, with mild winds blowing between 5 to 10 miles per hour. The rain is looking to continue into the night with increased humidity. The temperatures are looking to drop, but not too much, only into 37 degrees, 
with higher wind speeds between 10 to 15 miles per hour. As of now, half of an inch of rainfall is anticipated. Friday into the weekend is unfortunately looking to cool down again. Friday is looking to see continued rain, but also a chance for some snow in the morning into the afternoon. Wind speeds will be high between 20 to 30 miles per hour with even higher wind gusts. Although spring break has officially begun for UW-Madison students, it's not actually spring yet. The vernal or spring equinox begins next Monday. For many, it is hard to even think of spring as any time it warms up just a bit, we are followed by a snowstorm with six plus inches of snow. With the few days of warm hope we felt last week before Thursday's snowstorm came in, I walked around UW-Madison's campus and spoke with some students and professors about what makes it feel like spring to them. And here's what they had to say. My name is Megan Gordon. Um, what it makes it smell, uh, feel like spring to me is honestly like the smell of like dirt. Like when you first like start smelling things and it's like the cold of winter is gone mm-hmm. and like there's no longer like just desolate snow everywhere mm-hmm. and you start smelling the dirt and you hear the birds. Like that's really what makes it feel like spring to me. Um, my name's Josie Cargill. Um, I would definitely say like hearing the birds outside of like a window in the morning. Like that's like, oh, it's spring. Uh, Ethan? Uh, definitely the birds. Like we can see, we can hear a lot more birds like in the morning now. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Jaden Bailey. What makes me feel like I'm in spring is when everyone around me is wearing a t-shirt. Zach Zayos. What makes it feel like spring is when I can walk my dog without uh, her wearing a coat and she wants to run and I can uh, keep up with her because <laughs> I don't have to wear my boots anymore. And for what makes it feel like spring to me, I would have to say is being able to go outside without shivering or without wearing my gloves. For WORT News, I'm your weather producer, Caitlin Davis. It's Monday, which feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new movies unlikely to get Oscar nominations. First is the amusing sequel to the Mel Brooks classic, History of the World Part Two, then a disappointing cop thriller based on the BBC series Luther, featuring the great Idris Elba in the title role. Hands up where I can see them. Good gravy is Harriet Tubman. The inventor of the bathtub? These dumbasses enslave us. Roll it. And that was a clip from the trailer for History of the World Part 2, directed by Nick Kroll. Mel Brooks, who wrote, directed, and acted in the original, has a big presence in Part 2 as an executive producer, host, and narrator. Kroll, Wanda Sykes, and Ike Barinholtz are also writers, producers, and actors. The eight-part series has just started showing on Hulu. History is a series of ongoing sketches and gags, some of which are extremely funny, some that fall flat. It's done in the spirit of the original, but in the original, Brooks had soul control. Brooks, 96, opens the show saying, Hello, I'm American treasure, Mel Brooks. To some of you, I'm a hero. To others, merely a legend. Then he does a great sight gag. The recurring bits include the Civil War, with Bernholtz as General Ulysses S. Grant, who can't seem to catch a break or get any booze. The Russian Revolution, which includes some great musical numbers, with Nick Kroll and company in their small Russian village belting out a classic Broadway-inspired song. And Jack Black doing a winning solo as Stalin. Johnny Knox is hilarious as Rasputin. Another ongoing sketch, though, Shirley with Wanda Sykes as Shirley Chisholm, the first black woman congressperson who ran for president in 1972, just isn't funny. It's a clever idea, playing homage 
to 70s TV shows like Good Times and The Jeffersons. This version is filmed before a live black audience and has some interesting skit premises. One is Shirley Chisholm's real-life visit with presidential candidate George Wallace. An earnest cast, but it just doesn't work. A more successful recurring bit is Jesus and the Apostles in various guises, including a brilliant Curb Your Enthusiasm takeoff called Curb Your Judaism which features Kroll as Judas with some familiar Curb regulars playing variations on their characters from the Larry David show Jay Ellis is good as a laid-back Jesus and Anne Maria Horshford is enjoyable as the aggrieved Mary, Jesus' mother. There's also an exceptional parody of the Beatles' Get Back with the Apostles playing a Beatles-like group where Judas threatens to leave and the band plays Give Back up on the roof until the Romans come. History has a huge cast of actors, comedians, that would take too long to list here. There are some fun one-offs as well, like Seth Rogen as Noah with a new interpretation of which animals to save. There's more, but you get the idea. All in all, a pretty good but uneven series worth watching. Now for something more serious, a new violent cop thriller from the BBC. I need to stop this man. I'm still a copper. Not anymore. And if you refuse to stand down, tactical unit will shoot you dead. That was a clip from the trailer for Luther, The Fallen Son, directed by Jamie Payne. I've seen a few episodes of the BBC TV series Luther, starring Idris Elba, and I was looking forward to seeing the movie, but I was ultimately disappointed. The story is too thin, too violent, and too disturbing. Near the end, I actually thought of turning it off in anticipation of another scene of gruesomely dispatched bodies. The script was written by the TV show's creator and sole writer, Neil Cross. The movie's failings are not Elba's fault. He's a great anti-hero, just like in the series which ran until now five seasons, but the story just isn't developed enough to support him. Our main villain, cyber mastermind with infinite funds, David Robbie, is played enthusiastically by Andy Serkis, who does a good job, but seems mismatched with Elba's Luther. There are also several scenes that don't add up too well, like Luther ending up in prison so quickly after his numerous legal violations as a police detective are revealed. We should have at least been given a little title card for a transition like a year later Luther was tried and convicted and thrown into the slammer. Also missing some context is his prison escape and how exactly Luther's ally, a self-described simple thief, set up the riot that provided the cover for Luther's transfer and eventual escape. Then there's the obvious physical difference between Luther and Robbie. It's hard to see Robbie nearly outrunning Luther or besting him in a knife fight, even if it's Robbie who has the knife. It's also a little hard to fathom where all Robbie's money and influence is coming from. He seems to be hitting up a disturbingly large group of apparently Eastern European characters who have some horrible spyware that would make the Israeli spyware firm that produced Pegasus blush. In any case, are there really that many people that would want to pay to watch Robbie go about his grisly killing business. That ordinary Brits have done some things they're ashamed of, sure, but that so many people would fall victim to Robbie's manipulation? Some of these questions could be brushed aside with a better written story. As it is, this film has wasted some fine talent, including supporting actors like Luther's old boss, Martin Dermot Crowley and his replacement, Odette Rain, Cynthia E. Rebo. Sadly, I can't recommend this movie, but I look forward to seeing Idris Elba's next and hopefully better project. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. That does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's live local news at 6. Your headline writer, 
This evening was Nate Carlin. Your, your reporter was Kelsey Krogan. Your weather producer was Caitlin Davis. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle, and Dylan Brogan, and Nicholas Leet for technical production. Our absolutely favorite Scotsman, Victor Calzone, Calzone engineered the show. Nate Wege helped produce the newscast, and Shali Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Gene Delcourt. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night. Good night.